Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I'm delighted that today our guest is Jules Pieri. Jules is the co-founder and CEO of The Gromit, which has launched more than 3,000 consumer products since its inception in 2008. The leader of entrepreneurs and the maker movement, she's committed to building a citizen commerce-powered platform to help people support products for independent companies that align with their interests and values. The company's citizen commerce movement is reshaping how products are discovered, shared, and bought. On this Voice America show, my goal is to bring valuable information to leaders and emerging leaders that will prepare them to lead their organizations in the dynamic times we face. The more highly effective leaders we have, the better the journey. In addition to sharing models and our experiences, I invite you to find one thing from each weekly segment that you can put into practice in your own leadership. This may be something that you will change your thinking, or it may be something that changes your behavior. The outcome of this session, and it sounds trite, but I hope that people will see themselves in the dozens of case studies about real life makers. And if they have the ambition to start a product company or have a family member or friend who does, they'll feel like the the book and the content that Jules is talking about from her book will be a great map to and guide for them. This is the lens that she used to create it. And she's tried to give people their very best insights and glean um, that she has gleaned from working with over 3,000 makers. So let's start, Jules, with thank you for joining us. And what is the maker movement? It's uh, thanks for having me, first of all. It's a very sort of high level description of people who are creating things either at a sort of garage hobby level all the way to folks who create companies that could even go public, like one of the products we launched back in the day, Fitbit. It's a, um, it, it categorizes all those folks together because at the end of the day, there is something physical coming out of their efforts. So as a leader and a molder of entrepreneurs for over a decade now, uh, you've built the grommet on the belief that there's an endless supply of human creativity and the ongoing demand for innovative products from thoughtful consumers who seek 
support from independent companies? Um, why has turning an idea into a product suddenly become democratic and accessible to all instead of something limited to big-time entrepreneurs with financial backing? It's largely a technology story uh, and partly a consumer sentiment story. But let's start with the technology part. First of all, thank you, Internet, because uh, 10, 20 years ago, it would be hard to get, say, market data about the size of a market. It was more of a library trip. Or it would be hard to do market research and find the competition and who you might, um, where the holes might be in a market, or to find a designer or a, a source for packaging. So, internet alone is um, a great boon for these companies. But in parallel, a couple other things happen. There are a lot of really important micro, micro scale services that support these companies. For instance, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, in terms of funding, obviously, have, have been a great boon to this. But they kicked off all these other responses. When somebody creates a crowdfunding campaign, they need to ship the product. So there's a company called Shipwire where even if you're only shipping a few units at a time, you get very um, high-level, enterprise-level service. And if you sort of project that around what a product company needs to do, there are a lot of companies that form to help these companies. 3D printing would be another example. So those are all technology, internet, microservices, 3D printing, helps prototyping. But then consumer behavior, people have really organized around, uh, you mentioned it yourself, around the idea of the values behind a company and what are my values and who, who reflects those values and how can I um, act on those values. And I think there's something somewhat unprecedented happening in that there's a flight to small, believe it or not. Small companies in the minds of consumers today have more than ever um, a built-in sort of possibility of trust. They won't say it's automatic, but people are open-minded. And you see that in one of the most surprising categories in that you would think food is not a place where you want to buy products from unknown sources, yet the opposite is happening. In the last six years, the large brands have lost 19% of share in the grocery stores. That's huge. That's fast. So people are are acting on that. They are buying from companies they never heard of because they believe there is something there that reflects their values, whether it includes, you know, it's non-GMOs, or more innovation, and and I can talk more about that. But so it's this collision of technology and then people's openness to these products. So you mentioned grocery stores and the 19%. Is that in big box stores or is that like in my local market because I prefer to shop smaller? No, this is in big box stores. This These are in, in the stores that report, you know, Nielsen-type industry data where those industries, uh, those stores are very tightly measured. So you get great data out of the big stores. You don't get any data out of little stores. Got it. Okay. So you were going to go on with other examples? So the other thing that's happened here, you asked why is it more democratized? Well, sometimes something's democratized just because competitors let down their guard or they do something that 
uh, opens up a door. And the food example is, is kind of a preview of that. When it comes to many categories of products, large companies have been under-investing in R&D, focused on cost-cutting, and focused on propping up old brands with marketing. And this happened not necessarily because they set out to do this, that this, that this looked like a winning strategy. It happened because retail got really, really difficult. And as retailers consolidated, now remember, it was super exciting like in the 80s when the Walmart business model became, it was fresh, I would say. Like, hey, let's have less suppliers and uh, closer relationships with them, really tighten up the logistics, tighten up, um, you know, where the cash goes, tighten up the margins. It was a, a new way of behaving in retail, and everybody sat up, took notice, and started to imitate that. And what happened was, Retail consolidated and retail became more discount oriented because essentially, ultimately, you're competing on price with that strategy. And competing on price leads to a certain sameness. So suppliers started scrambling, cutting back on innovation, cutting costs, propping up old products. And just traditionally, large brands have huge expectations for a new product. They have almost our Darwinian outlook on retail. Like, if we introduce a new product, it will replace one of our old products. We won't necessarily get new shelf space. So, a new product, say at Unilever, has to get to $100 million in one year. $100 million. Well, a young company, a half million dollars or a million dollars is a smashing success. And I can give you a specific example from Unilever itself. I met two entrepreneurs in Telluride at a venture accelerator three years ago. And they, they were fresh out of Unilever where they'd met and they had proposed an idea for a reasonably priced all-natural bodies and hair care line for children. This did not exist. There were only high-end products, say, in Whole Foods. And it was a great idea. And Unilever recognized it was a great idea, but couldn't pull the trigger because of that $100 million hurdle. It was an unproven market, and they were not sure. So these two entrepreneurs took their show on the road. They launched a product line you can find. It's called Fresh Monster. It does exactly what they promised to do. And they're meeting the kind of goals that I mentioned earlier that work just fine for them, but would be a failure for Unilever. So we benefit as consumers, because we now have this affordable line of all-natural, healthy products for children. They're building a business and creating jobs, but Unilever lost in that scenario. So it seems like a brilliant example, and I know we're going to talk about more as we go through. So what frustrated you in your corporate career at big product companies that you were trying to solve by co-founding Gromit? Is there anything beyond what you just talked about with regard to hurdles and really smaller organizations with great ideas being closed out of the opportunities? It was mainly the, the retail response to our new products. So the um, place where it sort of came together for me was when I was working at Play School. 
and we had a wonderful R&D capability, and we were not conservative, you know, with massive hurdle rates about what we were willing to put out on the market. So we were really able to take some risks and, and willing to take some risks. But I noticed that our best products, our new ideas, kept falling off the table and never getting produced. And I asked my boss at the time, this is late 90s, what is going on here? And my boss, who was uh, the president of Play School and now famous, she's, she's Meg Whitman. She ran Hewlett Packard and eBay subsequently after mm-hmm. that. <laughs> but at the time, she was just Meg to me at Play School. And she said, Jules, here's the deal. We used to take all our new products out to small and independent retailers, toy stores. There's so few of them now. So now if, toy, uh, if Toys R Us or Kmart, Walmart, Target don't want it, we just can't make it. So that's what frustrated me and because it was wrong. It's, it was almost like a moral reaction or moral wrong to me that four toy buyers would determine what our pretty big company and very, you know, sort of heartfelt company could produce for infants and toddlers. That's just wrong. And it's not that those buyers were evil or short-sighted. They, they probably loved those products that we were presenting. They probably were parents themselves, but their corporate structure, especially all the Toys R Us, the toys were just not that important to them. And they were told, no, 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 don't take any risks. Just repeat last year with a twist. Just get a little more margin or tweak the color on that successful product last year. That's what they really asked for from us. And that's a loss. That's a loss to the babies and toddlers. It's a loss to the parents. It was a loss to play school. And that pissed me off. I know this isn't about how Amazon's emerging and and that as well, but the whole retail space is changing and that has to be changing the underlying accessibility to products. Yeah. Um, well, Amazon has definitely done a squeeze play on physical retail. So those independent retailers that I mentioned earlier have been the hardest hurt, um, not just by Amazon, by a move to online and, Frankly, consumers prioritizing convenience over their local communities. So, you know, we're all, we all have a role here. But Amazon, Amazon's a, when I tell people about um, Amazon's role in the innovation economy and it, its negative role, people are really surprised. It's not, it's not been a good, uh, good thing for these independent makers, um, primarily because it has exposed um, exposed them to the risk of counterfeits and copycats. Mm, okay. So with that as the background then, what sparked your idea for the book, How We Make Stuff Now? So for 10 years, we have worked um, to launch one product a day. We look at 300 a week and narrow it down to wow. six. So we've worked with and seen a lot, a lot of companies. And what became very evident over the years is that although our products, because they're so carefully curated, are brilliant and, you know, definitively better than alternatives, if you build it, they will not come. These companies have to take that brilliant product and build a business around it. And they have to compete in the same areas that the big guys compete in, the same competencies, whether it's 
logistics or financing or protecting their intellectual property or gaining market share in shelf space or market marketing in terms of consumer awareness. Like these are not casual activities. And all of these companies solve these things in isolation, solve, you know, gaining those competencies in isolation. And they make a heck of a lot of mistakes. And some of those mistakes can be fatal. And I thought, you know, let's take them to the head of the class. They already did half the hard work in creating this brilliant product. Let's not let the basics get in the way. I will codify this. I will put this in a book. We know from watching so many companies what the answers are and what the best practices are. Let's just put it in one place because, frankly, this book, until How We Make Stuff Now came out, this body of knowledge didn't exist anywhere because nobody else has worked with companies like this for so long like we have. Jules, this is absolutely amazing. And we're going to go on break in a second. And, and so for our listeners, as, as you are on break and listening to the commercials, think about products that you have imagined coming into the market and opportunities that you would see, but you've just never seen them. How often have you said, wouldn't it be nice if... X, but I have a full-time job and I have other responsibilities and imagine how different that experience will be with the resources Jules has created. We'll be right back with Jules and Maureen talking about how stuff is made. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. 
Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back with Maureen Metcalf and Jules Pieri, and we're talking about how we make stuff now. Let's shift to how are women involved in the maker movement, and specifically, how many makers that sell on Gromit are women, and what makes the Gromit, the maker movement, and this book particularly valuable to women? Uh, well, women, because they're 70 uh, composed. 70 to 80% of our consumer economy have a huge advantage, right? Noticing market opportunities, sometimes actually being the customer themselves. So this is our time, essentially. Um, Speaking from me, a woman, to you, a woman, Maureen. Um, Mm -hmm. But the stats are also looking good in in many areas. Uh, In our case, 40% of the products that we launch on the ground come from women, and if you look at the crowdfunding platforms, it's about 50-50 in terms of completed campaigns. But interestingly, women have a 65% higher likelihood of completing a campaign. So they're finding a very friendly audience on Indiegogo and Kickstarter. So why are we as women more likely to complete a campaign? I'm assuming there were larger social demographics underpinning that. And Well, I'm assuming some of it is in our careers, we are trained to perform. We are never promoted. This is a Wall Street Journal uh, finding. We are never promoted on our potential. We're only promoted on our past performance. So we never cut corners. And this is a broad statement, surely. There are women who do. But as a rule, we don't get cut a lot of slack in our careers. And so you get on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you assume you're going to have to do it all. There'll be no shortcut. So I assume women are just slogging through it more because it is a slog. These are not easy campaigns to complete. But I think the more positive side of it is that the audience on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, because they represent the population fairly well, understand Mm -hmm. these ideas. And in some venues, investment venues, most investment venues, the investor do not represent the population far from it. So it's much harder to find an audience who will understand your idea than it is on those platforms. Very interesting. So despite the surge then in and female entrepreneurism over the past decade, why do you think that it, it sounds like you're talking to the gender gap in funding? Is there anything else to add? Yeah, so I just told you something fairly positive, right? The, what's happening at the Gromit, what's happening in crowdfunding. It's a very negative underbelly to large scale investment, which is at the venture capital level. Women only get 
seven percent of funding. I didn't. I didn't say twenty-seven. I said two point seven, which is almost round. Well, rounds down to zero essentially, and that's that is quite a cause for concern because all of the great jobs and many of the great opportunities for future entrepreneurs start with venture-funded businesses. 11% of our GDP comes from those kind of companies. And those companies are getting born homogenous. Their leadership is homogenous. And that closes the door to big parts of the population and dampens the potential of those companies because statistically diverse leadership teams have a 31% higher return on capital. So it's a better investment move to invest in diverse teams. So just saying saying all that, you're probably like, well, then why the heck don't they? You know, investors can read these stats just like I said them. And the issue is very simple, that only 4 to 8% of investing professionals at those firms are women. And so there isn't the kind of appreciation for diverse teams or the ideas from diverse teams that there might be because the people they're pitching to are generally pale, stale, male, and don't have their pulse on the market. Okay, so this is the same issue we see across the market in several different sectors still. Yes, but it's, it's just more, way more extreme at venture capital. Uh, when I okay. started my business, a friend of mine who'd been through an unsuccessful funding raise period said, Jules, you're one of the happiest, most optimistic people I know, and I want you to press pause before you go out and try to raise venture capital because it will change you profoundly. You will see a world you do not like and can't believe exists. And I thought she was just, you know, kind of sour grapes, frankly. I didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. So I, I had it out, and I saw exactly what she was talking about. I felt like I walked into the 1960s. Wow. Who was in the office? Go ahead. And and so it looks like what you're doing is is raising this as an issue and providing an antidote. So one, we need to understand what the data says, but then two, what do we do with it? And it sounds like what you're doing at the Gromit gives alternatives. It does, but I'm I'm also myself taking action. I joined a, a, a venture fund called X Factor Ventures, and we only invest in diverse teams, and all the investing partners are women. So we're like sort of overcorrecting right now to because it's a massive business opportunity. We can do we can make great investments because other people are ignoring these teams. So I'm kind of like. You know, pulling the pulling the pendulum way over until the day when female leaders are the same caliber as male leaders, you know, running the gamut. But right now they tend to have been through so much that they tend to be exceptional. And I, working with a lot of leaders, I, I see the same trends you do. So let's shift What do you mean, gears. Maureen? What do you see? Um... It seems like in many cases, especially as I'm coaching executives, you know, some common trends. And one is 
women still tend to put their heads down and focus on the work and not as much on the politics, uh, which mm-hmm. puts them at a disadvantage. Um, the, the assumption that I'm not good enough until I've mastered it, where many of our, and, and this is obviously not as black and white as we make it sound, but the tendency with my female clients is I have to really knock it out of the park, what you mentioned before, before I think, I sh- before I think I'm competent, where many of our male colleagues jump in and feel comfortable and, and that confidence allows them to move forward more quickly and convince others that they are competent. When in some cases they are learning as they go much more than their female counterparts. Right. That makes sense to me. That makes sense. I see it when I interview people at the Gromit where, um, you know, say, I've seen this reported in other places. Let's say we're looking for 10 different competencies and a man might apply when he only has three and a woman won't apply because she only has seven. Yeah. Well, and you know what's interesting? So I am obviously female and I fall into these general traits. And what has helped me is my male life partner kind of kicking me out of my comfort zone and really giving good counsel about get over it. It's time to go where I would have hesitated. So having someone in my life that kicks me in in a positive way, and it sounds like that's what you offer among many other things at the Gromit. It's kind of simple. When women who have a product show up and look at our site, they see other women, right? It gives them the confidence because we have videos with each maker. And you can see that, um, or many of them, I won't say they're all in every video, every product video, but you can see they're just regular people talking about, well, I used to be an ER nurse, and then I came up with this, and they're not intimidating because they're just regular people. They used to be a teacher. They used to be a doctor. Whatever it was, it had nothing to do. In fact, only 10% of our makers have any professional qualifications for doing this. They have professional qualifications, just not for this, and so that's super confidence building. It's, It's great for them. It's just like if you know, the Marion Wright Edelman statement, if you, you can't see it, you can't be it if you can't see it. Well, they can see it here. So it gives them what your partner does for you, just literally seeing all these women doing it on the grommet, not just the grommet, obviously, is super helpful. You know, the other thing that strikes me is the idea of implicit bias. And one of the antidotes to that is seeing people um, who have been perceived as less capable, whether it's based on gender or nationality or orientation or whatever that bias is, when we see people who look like us, to your point, if you see it, you can be it. And folks in the majority, whatever, again, however you're defining that, are less aware at times of that need because they look around and they see people who look like them. Yes. Yeah, so I'm in a um, CEO peer group with all men. So we get together every quarter. And I've been kind of the, like, female whisperer for them um, where they're really surprised when I tell them some of my experiences because I'm a very confident, 
you know, I've succeeded, I'm, I'm confident. I, like, I, I don't present as someone who might have had some bumps. And I'll tell them, I have bumps every week that have nothing to do with my competency or my confidence. It's perception outside of myself or other weird things. Well, not weird. Like, I have to worry about my safety on a business trip. Well, that's a drain, right? Like, I want to think about my mm-hmm. business. I don't want to think about whether I can walk down the street to get to an appointment. They don't, you know, they would never think of that. They don't walk, they don't worry about walking to an appointment, and I might. And so it's, and I love these guys, and, and, and frankly, I, you know, I employ 50% men, and it's very important to me that this team be diverse because we're better because of it. I'm not looking for, a, you know, Amazon, let's take over, I mean, Amazon Zonian woman, uh, let's take over the world. I think we're better off when, when we're all at the table. I really deeply believe that because I've experienced it. Thank you for making that clarification because I have the same view and in no way am I about women above men. It's we hire the right people with the right skills to get the work done and they take all kinds of shapes and colors and orientations and yet it's important that we pay attention to also having the right representation in addition to skills. There's another reason to do it um, that surprised me. There's a Bain study, the Bain, the consulting firm, mm-hmm. yeah. that um, revealed that men at all levels in a company um, feel like a better sense of potential in their company if it has a diverse leadership team. So the people at the top are diverse. And I have to admit, when I first read that, it didn't make sense to me because I thought, well, why wouldn't, if you're a guy, why wouldn't you like an all-male leadership team it seems to you know raise the odds for you and I asked some of the men in the grommet like explain this to me and they said Jules we're not pain- we're not all painted with the same brush it might be a bunch of guys from the same fraternity or all play golf at the top of the company I may have nothing in common with them so them being men doesn't necessarily give me confidence but when I see women or people of color then I know that people are being judged on their merits because they wouldn't be there. Otherwise, it's not easy for those people to get those seats. So they obviously earned it. And that means I can earn it, too. I love that. I think that's a great example. Let's move now to stories of makers that you profiled. Can you give one or two that most inspired you and why? I would say um, this one that's kind of unexpected that always inspires me. So a woman named Bonnie Tyler has a web design business. So she's already an entrepreneur in a digital business. She was going to a party, promised deviled eggs, too busy. She started too late, didn't get the eggs done. They were too slow to peel. She brought potato chips. Big fail. She <laughs> said there must be a better way. And she looked around, figured out how commercial egg peelers do it and essentially miniaturized what they do into a single egg, non-motorized, you know, simple home gadget called the NEG. Works like a charm, peeling a single egg. And that's the end of the story. But in the middle, here's what happened. She needed to prototype this idea, and Bonnie's never done anything like this. She lives in Connecticut. So she noticed her local library had a, a course on 3D printing, which many do, by the way. This is a big trend. And so Bonnie who, by the way, is 76 years old, walks in to the library for her course, 
the instructor walks into the room, and the instructor is 11 years old. Oh, my goodness. That's That's a fabulous story. That's what's happening in the maker movement. Bonnie can do it, and this 11-year-old can do it, and they can collaborate across three generations. Amazing. That's very inspiring to me to know that. We have makers who are our high school students and, and, and up to what would normally be retirement age, not in Bonnie's case. I don't see her ever retiring. Um, so that, that would be one. Um, I will say one day I came in the office. It was kind of early days in Gromit, and my co-founder had two super basic pairs of socks on her desk, like white athletic socks, a crew sock and an ankle sock. She said, you're going to love this. It's going to be, you know, grommet. And I'm like, what? Are you crazy? These don't have a, you know, a whiff of innovation looking at these socks. <laughs> and she said, listen, there is a town in Alabama called Fort Payne. It used to be the sock capital of the world. And around the, in the 90s, we offshored all our production, so that town's been nearly decimated. And Gina Locklear, a woman in her late 20s, grew up in her family's factory making socks and saw that happening to them. She looked around and realized there actually were no domestically produced organic cotton socks. And she knew from her own cohort that would be interesting to some consumers. So she decided, you know, we're going to die anyway. Let me take a risk here and figure this out. Maybe we can retool this factory to do that. Long story short, that's what she did. She, she created the company, a new brand. Zacano is the name of the brand. And those boring white socks that I saw on the table when I heard that story became heroic. They're really special. Who wouldn't want them? You're saving, you know, you're saving a little town and a family business, and they're great socks for a good price. And since then, it's become a full product line. It's not just the boring ones, um, but they have deeper meaning than they would have if uh, they were, you know, kind of any old socks for the same price coming from some other country from a big company. You know, that seems like one of the most interesting parts of this is it is creating opportunities for segments of the population that would not have opportunities. And I wondered at the beginning when we talked about women, if if this was also tied to the idea that often we as women don't have those opportunities. In many cases, you and I obviously do. I think of that so many layers. I think, yes, we talked about gender. Uh, obviously, people of color are another segment of folks who are just as entrepreneurial as anyone. And, um, you know, we, we hope to do right by them. Same with veterans. It turns out that 25% of veterans have an ambition to start a company. And, and you know, we, we see some great products. They have you know, kind of stereotypically amazing discipline and leadership. So that's a good thing for entrepreneurship. Um, I see it in terms of geography. I come from Detroit, and um, there is definitely something different about people who come from places like that or Pittsburgh, places where their parents made things, even if they didn't themselves. You know, I, I just... I was having breakfast this morning from someone who happened to also come from Detroit and we were talking about a company that makes gaskets and and he just sort of jokes with me that we both know what gaskets are. Like, I mean, plenty of people do, but plenty of people don't. 
and we do because of where we grew up. And that matters. You're going to create something. So we can extend this opportunity beyond the coast where, you know, typically, especially in software, the coasts tend to suck up all the air. And that is not necessarily the case in physical goods. So we're going to go on break now. I love the idea that we are able to create opportunities for a range of the population, evidently from 11 to well over 70, and probably 80 (laughs) or 90. Uh, So as we go on break, I would love to have our listeners reflect over this break about who have you seen that inspires you in, in coming up with innovative ideas? We'll be right back with Jules and Maureen. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovating Leaders, Co-Creating Our Future. 
and what a great topic for co-creating our future when we think about how do we democratize makers. So on that note, let's talk about how do our listeners begin? Sure. So I think the very first thing to do is, let's say you have an idea, um, you start taking baby steps. It's not like some epic, huge commitment because that's too scary. And the first baby steps to me are trying to figure out out if there's a market for your idea. And some of that's just numbers. Like you take a look at even government data for, you know, people with dogs or people who drive a certain kind of car or people with this kind of profession that you might have an idea to help them. And locally, uh, the the Small Business Administration has so many offices. I think it's 450 across the country with counselors who can help you navigate that data because it's not something most of us need in our daily lives. You can use Google Trends to see what are people searching for because searches are a proxy for a problem, right, or a product need. And you can look at Amazon because you can see, wait a minute, if Amazon doesn't carry this solution that I kind of have in my mind, there's a pretty good chance it doesn't exist. Or if it does, you can see how popular it is and whether it has flaws or poor reviews that you could maybe improve upon whatever the existing solutions are. whole point of this is you want a pretty big customer base because it's just as hard to build a really small business as a big one. I really believe that. And, and generally, I have a bias. I generally feel like if you're going to throw a big part of your life and time over to something, you know, make it worth it. And this is the very first thing to do. Make sure this is not a tiny population you're trying to serve. I think that's great advice to make sure there is a market first. It's surprising how many people um, won't do that basic work. They will ask their neighbors or their brother or their sister, and those are not proxies for you know real market demand. In fact, mm-hmm. it's the worst. They're the worst people to ask because they love you, and they're going to tell you probably that you have a great idea. It's far better to talk to strangers. I'll give you a funny example of how one of our makers does this. I won't get into the product itself, but she brought a very rough prototype of the product um, with her to the airport. She lives in L.A. Her family was heading out for uh, a vacation. She said, look, I'm going to go to the airport three hours early. I need to do a little research. Took the prototype, took a bunch of clipboards with surveys that had questions about the prototype like and people's uses of this kind of product. And she just walked from gate to gate with these surveys, distributing them, showing the product, never revealing she was a creator. She pretended she was market research lady and got all this feedback. And in the airport, people are like a captive audience. They're dying <laughs> for you to talk to them. And this is what she still does to this day. She doesn't go anywhere. She doesn't fly anywhere. She just buys a really cheap ticket, goes in the airport, walks gate to gate, and does her market research there. Wow. So for $50 or something, I'm thinking of the cheapest ticket, she has a captive audience and she can stay for hours. Exactly. And it's a cross-section of the population, right? Like, she'd have to pay tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars for access to these people, and she pays 50 That's fabulous. So does everyone with a great idea for a new product have potential to become a successful entrepreneur? No, uh, I would say, um, I mean, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, but 
I think but Debbie realist. Debbie what? Debbie realist. Debbie realist. I do mean to be Debbie realist. I think some entrepreneurs think if I build it, they will come. And and that's what I would like them to understand because even if you create a brilliant product, there are two routes to success. One is truly you can license your idea to other people, but that's, that's not a typical path, and it's only true in some categories. Housewares and toys are really big on licensing, but generally... You're going to have to do some of the hard work to build uh, awareness for your product, you know, source packaging, protect your intellectual property, property, finance it, get into production. Those are not small steps. And that's the part you need to embrace equally to the joy of creating the product because the product success depends on being willing to do all of those other steps. So here's a question. I run a a consulting firm and I spend probably well over half my time doing all the stuff that's not consulting. So I started this because there's something I love doing and running a business is hard. In a product company, for anyone who's listening who thinks they can launch a business, is there a general guideline for what percentage of their time they're going to actually spend doing the other stuff until they hire people to do it? Um, your list, well, it, there are going to be two, two um, time frames, almost like before launch or, and after launch. So launch, I mean creating a product that's in production. Before that period, it's probably 90-10, and then it's 10-90 afterwards. So you're going to ride that product, that first iteration, and you know somewhat live with it while you build the business. And building the business will be all those other things. And I guess that's partly why I said the Debbie realist thing, because you have to be sure you want to do all those other things, too. You don't get to just be a creative inventor. Ultimately, you might get back there if you can scale the business and hire enough people to do things that are not that. Um, but there's a period of time, and it could be years, before you really feel you're, you can get back in that seat. Uh, otherwise, you kind of revisit that seat periodically when you're, you need to create new products or refresh the product, but it's not your daily diet. That seems foundational for our listeners to understand that making the thing, whatever it is, is only a very small part of actually running a successful business. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast today with the founder of FrameBridge, and um, and that's an online framing company. And and she basically said, you know, the idea is pretty worthless. It's all the execution. She said every single week, someone tells her they had the same idea because it's a it's a great idea. And she kind of just stares at them like, well, so what? You didn't do it. I did. <laughs> you know. And she's not being a jerk. It's just the reality. Like it's mm-hmm. it's about the doing it. <laughs> used the term earlier it's a slog you get up every morning and you like you do everything else you brush your teeth you wash your face you go through the daily often mundane tasks and it's the willingness to do the slog that makes the difference between success and the the next person who says i had that same idea yes yeah and um for people of true passion for the product the slog can become, has its own form of joy because 
the slog is like having a child and feeding that child and seeing that child grow. Like you didn't have a child to change its diapers, but you do because it's important. And it's, you know, not a bad analogy for a product company to, to think of it as the care and feeding of a, a, a being you love, that product. So that's a great point, and we're going to wrap up in a moment. Um, as we wrap, is there a final message you want listeners to think about other than buy your book and make sure that you are smart <laughs> before you engage in this process, quit your job, invest your 401k, all the things that people do that that creates incredibly bad outcomes for our society when people lose everything they have in service of making something when they had resources to take them down a different path? Well, I'm going to be a little contrarian to everything you just said and I said and say, on the other hand, who wants to live with regrets? And to me, the only real failure is not trying. In fact, back to the book, I tell people, read the introduction and read the conclusion first, because the conclusion is more or less about that, like the rallying cry for why, okay, what's, what's the pro, you know, pro argument for doing all this? And I actually deeply believe that. So I don't want it to all be about the slog, because there is joy, and there is, there is triumph in trying, even if you don't succeed. I would not recommend, you know, losing your your 401k. You have to bo- put boundaries on your financial exposure for sure. That's that's really important. But there is joy, and and I would be doing your reader your listeners a disservice if I didn't recognize that because I feel it every day in what has been a slog for ten years. There's there are. Different proportions. Sometimes the joy exceeds the slog. Sometimes the slog's bigger than the joy. But it's all a good mix. And I, I apologize. I didn't mean to sound like nobody should do this. No, you didn't. Because, you didn't. because I, I just, do my I own company. I felt like funny, I, I was doing that. <laughs> I wouldn't choose differently now, but without tenacity and a lot of financial preparedness, I, I've seen people put their family's financial health at risk, and that, that is unfortunate. And we have two minutes to close, so final comments, and where do people reach you? How do they find out more about your book? How do they find out more about the Grom? The book um, has its own website, How We Make Stuff Now, and it's available anywhere you might buy books, locally or online. And um, I have a blog under my own name, Jules Pieri. You can learn more about the making of the book or how to write a book. I actually put put that into the blog in case people want to do that. Um, and then The Grommet is just thegrommet.com. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And any final comments to listeners about what is the biggest joy you have in running The Grommet and writing? It's seeing... Um, all the jobs that we've helped create and the good jobs doing worthwhile work and creating the kind of world that I want to live in. That's very joyful. Thank you. As it, it, we just went through a rebranding and looking at what, what are we, what do we stand for? And this idea of innovating leadership, co-creating our future. I love that you are creating a world that makes people's lives better. 
Oh, thank you. It's that that is, you know, it's an honor, honestly, and it's my life's work. Thank you. Thank you for your work and to our listeners. I hope you heard something today from Jules about how we make things, either for the people in your life that are making things and how do you support them, or if you are in either a product company or considering producing something in addition to your primary work. Her book is absolutely invaluable in laying out information to help you make this journey more effective. I encourage you to email me uh, with your comments, either info at innovateleader.com or on Facebook, Innovating Leadership. Thank you very much for joining us today, and I hope you join us again soon. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.